Well, good morning, First Perez family. Hope all of you are doing well. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to grab them and turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be considering together this morning verses 34 uh, through Mark chapter 9, verse 1. I was thinking this week that many of us probably know what it's like to uh, be a part of teams or to be a part of organizations or groups or families um, and to have laid out for us uh, what the expectations are in order to fulfill our commitment to that, that group or that organization. Uh, for example, I, I hope that if you were to ask my children, uh, what does it mean to be a Yates? That Amongst other things, one of the things that they would say is that to be a Yates means that we operate with faithfulness and with excellence. Uh, th those two words, those two concepts are things that we talk about often in our home. Those are standards that we hold ourselves to. That th Those are the things that we measure ourselves against amongst others, that we do things faithfully and excellently. I remember uh, when I was a baseball player years ago, that at the beginning of each of the seasons, our coach would have a team meeting. And one of the things that inevitably he would do is he would begin to lay out for us what the expectations were upon us in order to be faithful members of that team that year. I'm guessing that many of us also know what it's like to be a part of groups or organizations where when what's expected of us is not clear or at best it's a moving target. We know the angst and the frustration that comes with thinking, am I, am I doing this right? Am I going in the right direction? In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to lay out for the disciples and for the crowd and ultimately for us clear expectations of what it means to follow him faithfully. If you've been with us, this is the conclusion of a conversation that Jesus has been having with his disciples for a while now that began with the question to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter confessed that you're the Christ. And then we see Jesus begin to lay out for the disciples what that means, that he's going to suffer and be rejected and ultimately die. And, and Peter didn't accept that. And so he, he rebukes Jesus, but then Jesus turns around and, and rebukes Peter, saying that he's setting his mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. In our passage before us, Jesus is going to seize upon this opportunity to clarify for the disciples and for the crowds and ultimately for us what it means to follow him faithfully as the Christ that we confess. So Mark chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 34, this is God's word. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he, being Jesus, said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray for our time in God's word. 
Father, we come this morning to hear from you. We thank you that you have spoken. We pray that during our time around your word this morning, you would encourage us and strengthen us, that you would convict and renew us so that our lives uh, would resemble your call to follow you faithfully. Uh, to that end, we commit ourselves and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we dive in this morning, I, I want us to consider two characteristics or expectations. You could even say requirements that Jesus lays out for us as his followers of how it looks to follow him faithfully. And what we'll see is that in verses 34 to 37, Jesus tells us that to follow him faithfully, we, we're going to have to have a cross-shaped allegiance. We'll see in verses 38 through chapter 9, verse 1, that if we're going to follow Jesus faithfully, we have to have an unashamed association with Jesus and his teaching. So two expectations, two requirements, a cross-shaped allegiance and then an unashamed association. Let's consider the that first one together, having a cross-shaped allegiance. Let's look together again at verse 34. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, what's interesting is because Jesus had a cross-shaped life in ministry, then the expectation is that our following of Jesus, our lives in pursuit of him will take on the shape of the cross as well. One of the things that's interesting is that our English translations don't, don't really pick up on it, but, but the way that this statement is said and, and written for us communicates that before we can even follow after Jesus, we have to deny ourselves. We have to take up our cross. There's a sense in which self-denial and taking up our cross are the prereqs in order to even be able to follow Jesus. One of the things that Jesus is teaching assumes here is that in our lives there there is a throne and that there is a king who sits on the throne ultimately that you and I are serving somebody somebody is guiding and directing who we are and what we do and we know that because of sin and because of our fallen nature each of us is predisposed to serve self. And the calling here from Jesus is ultimately a calling to renounce ourselves, to dethrone self, and to enthrone Jesus. That idea of denying yourself is the idea of turning your back on someone that you previously owed or gave your allegiance and devotion to. It's a, it's a sense of betrayal. We're, we're called to betray ourselves to dethrone ourselves and to enthrone Jesus. Jesus is saying that a, a changing of the guard is required if we're going to follow him faithfully. Some of you may know this, but I'm a, I'm a pretty avid soccer fan. And one of the things that you see in soccer culture and fan culture and around soccer stadiums is that, that many of the supporters of the various clubs, they wear scarves, scarves that have the, the colors and the logo of the team that they support. It's a, it's a way to express fanhood. It's a way ultimately to express allegiance to this 
particular team. It's similar to what we might see in American sports of fans wearing the jerseys of their favorite players. Again, it's a, it's a way to express allegiance. One of the things that happens at times in really big soccer matches is that vendors will create and try to sell what are called half and half scarves, where one half of the scarf has the colors of one team and the other half of the scarf has the colors of the other team. To wear a half and half scarf would be the equivalent of showing up to Jordan Hare Stadium for the Iron Bowl, sporting your favorite Cam Newton jersey. But at the same time, to wear your favorite Roll Tide hat, that's, that's foolish. N nobody in their right mind, unless maybe they had kids on each of the teams, would, would do that, would, would express allegiance to such competing realities. And what Jesus is saying here, in a sense, is that in our pursuit of him, there's, there's no half and half scarves that are allowed. He's calling for utter and total allegiance to himself. So I want us to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean that our allegiance is cross-shaped? And I want to mention two ways, two things that it means. The first is that it means our allegiance is motivated and empowered by grace. You know, it'd be easy to read this call as coming from a, a heavy-handed authority figure over us, but but that's not what we know. We, we know that this comes from the one who we've just called the Christ, the one who has said he's going to lay down his life for us. It comes from our Savior King. It doesn't come from a drill sergeant saying, get in line. It, it comes from a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. To follow Christ with a cross-shaped allegiance is what Paul captures when he says the love of Christ compels me. It's the love of Jesus for me that, that controls me and drives me to follow him. Not out of fear, but in a response of love and grace to him. So what else does it mean that our allegiance is cross-shaped? It also means that we've, we've counted the cost. It means that we've joined Jesus on his path of suffering and rejection and death. Jesus made clear for Peter and the disciples that his path as the Christ was one that would ultimately be suffering in rejection and death. And he calls us to join him on that path, gladly and willingly embracing the suffering and the rejection and the death that may come as a result of following Jesus faithfully. Jesus told his disciples that the world hated him and that we can expect that likewise the world will hate us because we're his followers. You know, this is a heavy call. It is. But Jesus knew that, which is why in verses 35 to 37, Jesus offers some encouragement and some perspective to those of us who are seeking to follow him well. It's those series of statements where Jesus talks about the one laying down his life will, will ultimately save it, and, and the, the one who lives for the kingdom will find their life. The summary of Jesus's encouragement and perspective is this. It's, it's worth it. Whatever we would lose, whatever we would forsake in order to be faithful to Jesus, will gain in glory forever and ever. Just as the cross led Jesus through suffering to glory, so our following 
of Jesus, though it goes through suffering, will ultimately end in glory. And so how do we, how do we apply this teaching to our lives? Let me offer a couple of ways. One is, do you view all the various areas of your life as a stewardship given to you by God in order to be leveraged for the sake of His kingdom? Do you view the fact that you're a spouse as a way to get something from your spouse? Or do you view it as a way to have your life be used by God to help your spouse see and experience and know more of the gospel? As a parent, do you view your children as arrows put in your quiver to be aimed at the will of God? Or do you view your children as a, as a way to gain an identity and a purpose and a name for yourself? What about your business and your finances? Are these things being leveraged so that you can invest in and be in the work of the kingdom? Or, or are you using these things in order to gain for yourself a life of comfort and ease? and enjoyment. What about your academic pursuits? Are you laboring hard in your studies so that you can uh, secure the good life for yourself out there in the job world? Or are you laboring hard in your studies so that as God sends you out into industry and sends you out into the marketplace, you're ready to be on mission for Jesus? Is your whole life being leveraged so that Jesus is made famous and the kingdom is expanded through it. That's what it means to have a cross-shaped allegiance. I think one of the other things that I've been thinking about and that I know is true for many of us, many of us in this season is, is the providential reality that across the board, our lives have almost been put into park over the last few months. And one of the questions for each of us is, we begin to return to the world and re-engage the world over the coming months is, will we re-enter the rat race or will we allow King Jesus to speak into and order the way our lives look as they begin to ramp back up? I was reading something a couple of weeks ago and I, I thought it captured this idea so perfectly. A guy was writing and he said this, picture your family's hectic schedule last fall as a whiteboard. It's been wiped clean. Now, pray over each element that you consider adding back in. Be certain it helps you achieve Christ's mission for you and your family. This is cross-shaped allegiance. Ordering and leveraging all of life around Jesus' desires for us and around Jesus' mission. Jesus said to the crowds, and he says to us, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Cross-shaped allegiance. I want us also to consider what we said would be the, the second facet of following Jesus faithfully, which is an unashamed association with Jesus and his teaching. Look, with me again at verse 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory. You know, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't just talk about being 
ashamed of him as a person. He, he also mentions his words. He mentions his teaching. There's a sense where Jesus is saying that if we claim him as our Christ, we're also embracing his words. We're embracing his teaching, not only about himself and who he is and what he does, but about the world where he has placed us. You, you can't divorce who Jesus is and what Jesus says. This is why Jesus was so stern with Peter. Peter rightly claimed Christ, but then he was unwilling to accept uh, the kind of Christ that Jesus said he was. In a sense, Jesus was unwilling to associate with Jesus as he described himself. What Jesus is saying here is that if we claim him, we accept him on his terms. To reject Jesus or to reject his words, his teaching about himself or the world where he has placed us is to be ashamed of him in a sense. And so what does it mean practically to unashamedly associate with Jesus? It means a couple of things. It means that we too confess like Peter and the disciples and the disciples of Christ down through the generations that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Savior King who has come to save sinners and establish His kingdom. It means we recognize that sin is a big deal and that apart from Jesus' intervention in our lives, we're hopeless and helpless to save ourselves. It means that when we try to contribute to our salvation or we seek to look to aspects of our lives to find merit before God, we are, in a sense, ashamed of Jesus, the only one who saves. It means that when we try to run our own lives rather than submit them to King Jesus, we're, we're ashamed of Jesus, the only rightful King. When we try to concoct a Jesus that fits nicely into our lives rather than the one before whom we submit our lives, in a sense we're shaming Jesus. To associate unashamedly with him is to accept him as he is, as he tells us he is, as the Christ, as the Savior King over all. You know, I was thinking about us this week and our unique temptations as uh, Christians, as followers of Christ in the American South. And I think that for many of us, the, the temptation is not necessarily to reject Jesus. To, to be honest, it, it cost us very little to claim Christ in our culture. I think for us, the greater temptation is to be ashamed of Jesus's words and his teaching especially in those places where our culture finds what Jesus has to say reprehensible. For example, I, I think our friends, our neighbors, our culture is fine if we claim Christ as long as we don't spend too much time talking about sin and hell and judgment. I think our culture is fine if we claim Christ as long as we're not those crazy folks who think that Jesus is the only way. I think our culture is fine if we claim Christ as long as we don't embrace and talk about the Bible's vision and teaching about sexuality and marriage and gender. I think our culture's fine if we claim Christ as long as we dole the edges of loving the poor, of fighting injustice, and of embracing the stranger 
an alien. I think our culture is fine if we claim Christ as long as we keep him tucked away in our homes, in our churches, and we never let him out into the public sphere. My fear for many of us is that we're often resolute in claiming Christ, yet we're too often ashamed of what Jesus says about himself and about the world in which we live. And I, I want to take this one step further. I think for many of us, many in our churches, many in the American church and around the world, rather than being ashamed at Jesus's person and his teaching, we're often instead ignorant or unaware of, of what Jesus has even said. We, we don't intentionally reject Jesus's teaching. We just, we just don't know what it is. You know, studies abound that we live in one of the most biblically illiterate generations in the history of the world, which is ironic considering uh, that the vast majority of people, especially in our country, know how to read. And, and studies show that the Bible is still one of the most widely sold books in publication and, and that the average American household has at least one Bible. You know, this, this truth really came home to me a number of years ago after we had our son Titus. I was interacting with a number of folks, good church folks who had, had sat in many worship services. They had been a part of many Sunday school classes and, and they, were, they were asking me about Titus's name. They asked me where I got his name. And I told them that I got it from the Bible. And one of, one of the gentlemen that I was speaking with, he said to me, where, where in the Old Testament did you, did you find this? I don't, I don't remember reading about Titus. And, and almost to my own shame, I, I said to him in this group that, that Titus gets an entire letter. It's an entire book of the New Testament. This, this man was pretty obviously embarrassed. I think that, that story captures for me where many in our churches find themselves. We claim Christ. We love Jesus. We're going through all the motions, yet we're often unaware of some of the basic things about God's Word and what Jesus teaches. I hope that this doesn't shame us. I hope that in some sense it stirs us up and it challenges us and it, it exhorts us to to take bigger steps in our pursuit of knowing God and understanding His, His Word and the world in which He's placed us. If you're not using the FPO Bible Reading Plan, I would invite you to dive in with us, not for our sake so that more people are using our tools, but so that we each would become more faithful followers of Jesus, that we can associate with Him more fully because we know what His Word says. We know how it applies to our lives. One of the things that encourages me here, just like in the, the last point, is that Jesus knows this is a heavy teaching, and he offers us some encouragement in verse 1 of chapter 9. He, he tells the crowds, he tells the disciples that the kingdom that they're laying their lives down for is coming, that for many of them it will come in their lifetimes. They'll see it with their own eyes. We know that Jesus is speaking about his death and his resurrection, where the kingdom takes a foothold in ways that it, it never has and that in ways that it will never lose. Jesus is encouraging us that it's worth it. Whatever we forsake in order to be faithful followers 
of King Jesus, we have the sure hope and promise that his kingdom is imminent. It's here and it's worth our lives. I want to leave us this morning with a picture that I hope captures both the weight of the call that Jesus gives us, but also the dependence upon God's grace that you and I have to have in order to follow Jesus well and heed his call to come after him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, the Apostle Paul is reflecting on his own life and ministry. And this is what he says in verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Did you, did you catch Paul's processing of his own life and ministry? On the one hand, he, he says that all of it, everything he is and everything he's accomplished is, is owed to the grace of God toward him in Jesus Christ. But then he turns around and says, his grace toward me wasn't in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I, I labored to be the man Jesus called me to be and to fulfill the mission that Jesus gave to me. But then the, the final uh, word is that when I looked back, it wasn't even I. It was God's grace in me. This is cross-shaped allegiance. This is unashamed association with King Jesus, a, a resolve that's motivated and empowered by the gospel to order and leverage all of our lives for the sake of King Jesus and his kingdom. My hope and prayer is that each of us will heed this call empowered by the gospel and as a result, our lives and our homes and this family here at First Press would be used by God mightily to expand his kingdom in the world. To that end, let's commit ourselves and pray. Father, we thank you that you have spoken and we pray. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would bury this call deep in our hearts and minds and that as a result, we would forsake all to follow you faithfully. We thank you for the spirit that you've given us and the word that you've given us to guide us and lead us along the path. Strengthen us by grace today to be your faithful followers so that you, King Jesus, would get a name for yourself. To that end, we commit and pray. Uh, we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. Blessings. Love you guys.